Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. LMFM Podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or you can book a personal consultation at our fabulous new showroom in Moortown, Dramiskin. Call 087-660-40-237 or visit our website at cnccarpets.com to book an appointment. CNC Carpets, for all your carpet and wood flooring needs. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Hello, good morning. Welcome to the Michael Reed Show. This is Ken Murray sitting in for the remainder of the week. Michael will be back with you in the hot seat next week. If you do want to get in touch on any of the issues we're discussing this morning, you can text or WhatsApp us on 086-1800-658. Plenty to get through between now and 11 a.m. Let's start off with what is one of the pressing issues of the moment, and you may have heard on the news that 78 people seeking refuge in Ireland were turned away without state-provided accommodation over the last few days, including 44 Ukrainian refugees and 34 international protection applicants. This perhaps is a reflection of where we've arrived at a point where there are so many refugees coming into the country, something in the region of 57,000, give or take a thousand, and the state, it seems, does not have enough accommodation to house these people. There was a meeting of the Cabinet on Monday evening. A number of uh, measures were announced, and they're going to be rolled out in the coming days and weeks. Uh, To discuss this, I'm joined on the line by our political correspondent, uh, Sean Defoe. Sean, let me begin by asking you, have we reached a point where people are saying in government uh, we may have to put limits on the amount of people coming into the country? Uh, No, so the government is very firmly saying that that's not what they're going to do, that there's not going to be any sort of a cap on the people that we accept, but that the message needs to be sent very clearly uh, to Ukrainian refugees, but also refugees coming from other countries, that at the moment they cannot be guaranteed of accommodation if they do come here. So the the Taoiseach Micheál Martin has been asked about this a number of times, and he said there is both a legal and a moral obligation on Ireland to accept refugees through the European systems and then through the international protection program that we also run, and that's so that they won't, you know, they won't be doing that. But that it should be made clear if you are coming here, there is absolutely no guarantee, and there's not going to be a guarantee for the foreseeable future because the government have asked several times up to and the tonish to can they put a number on how many accommodation places they think they're going to be able to secure through this new drive for the likes of holiday homes for other pledges, and they're not able to do it, and on top of that you have 
the Tornish is saying that projections are between 1,500 and 2,000 new refugees have been arriving every week and that that's likely to continue. So that puts a further place, even if the government is sourcing 2,000 places a week, which would be a very high bar and a very high demand, that's likely to be eaten up by, by demand. So it's a very tricky position that they're in. But that idea of a cap, um, even though some people have, have been calling for it or suggesting it, it's certainly been out there in the ether, both among people and among politicians, that's not what they're going near at the minute. If the government is effectively saying, you know, you can't be guaranteed accommodation if you come here, is that a subtle way of saying, look, uh, we have a crisis on our hands here. There is simply not enough beds uh, to house those that are coming in. Is this a sort of a, a message that's going out to Ukrainian refugees that perhaps if they're thinking of coming to Ireland, they might be better off going elsewhere? Yeah, I think that that is pretty much what it is. You know, they are saying that, look, you, you are welcome in Ireland, but right at the moment we are having a particular squeeze on accommodation and squeeze on services. And so you may be better served going to other countries. But the the problem is this is a cross-European problem. And Tornister was very much making that point yesterday, having spoken to leaders in Brussels last week, that uh, most countries are coming under this kind of strain. I think Ireland is 10th in the amount of refugees we've come, taken in per capita, but other countries are feeling it very, very, uh, very harshly as well. In, in Poland in particular, where they've taken in you know, uh, almost millions across the border now, and the countries that are physically closer to Ukraine, they're also having trouble. So it's not just something that Ireland has an issue with, but that when a refugee is, is trying, is fleeing, unfortunately fleeing, and obviously not given any sort of a, a choice in that, they are trying to get out of a war zone in a very deadly situation. And there is an element, I suppose, of any port in a storm. Um, but at the same time, they should give some consideration if there are other countries where accommodation is a bit more plentiful at the minute. We had a situation, um, I think, was it back in April? Uh, Roderick uh, O'Gorman, the Minister for Integration, uh, basically called on local authorities to provide or identify buildings that could be used for accommodation. And this was repeated again on Monday night. Now, there's a couple of things here. Is this an admission that the local authorities are not doing as was requested back in April? Or is this the government saying, yeah, look, we're going to leave it to the local authorities. If this doesn't work out, we can blame them. No, I don't think it's an element of the, the latter point you made because the blame is going to fall onto the government if they don't properly deal with this. And I don't think they have that luxury of being able to kick it to the council and say, oh, God, well, what did you do? We tried. And um, they, they've broke very much off with the government in, in terms of uh, finding people and finding finding people their, their accommodation places. And I think there probably does need to be maybe a bit of an extra drive from the Department of Housing. A lot of this still seems to be led by the Department of Children, whose, whose expert, expertise is, is not in housing, despite their involvement, obviously, in the International Protection Programme and the likes of direct provision. I think in terms of councils, some of the councils have been really embracing this and really playing a blinder and have been going above and beyond to find accommodation places. But now there is a need that, look, there, there is extra places needed out there and everyone knows it every town in Ireland you know that where there is vacant buildings or, or derelict buildings how quickly could some of them be brought back into use if there are areas that they haven't been thinking about but then there are areas that have been awful slow really Ken I mean they said at the start of the outbreak of this in March and April that they'd already identified 80 different buildings from all the, the local authorities that could be relatively easily retrofitted we've no idea how many of them have actually been brought into use so there is a bit of a question mark there and, and there is the fact that at that time, they were saying the number of refugees here could be anywhere between 100,000 and 200,000. We haven't even come close to that number yet. We're already full. So the plans that were put in place while everyone accepted is a very difficult challenge for the government and for the department. You just wonder, was there more that could have been done over the last few months or when the number of refugees that was coming in had slowed down that could have better prepared us for this particular rush? 
The Ukrainian ambassador to Ireland, Larissa Garasco, said recently that the lack of accommodation for Ukrainians coming into Ireland uh, is unacceptable. Now, in diplomatic terms, that's like putting the boot into the government, and it's not the type of term that uh, diplomats tend to use at that level. How has that been received by the government? Yeah, obviously quite sharp criticism, and there is an element of some in government to saying, well, look, you know, some of that criticism is fair. We haven't been able to find the level of accommodation places they would have hoped to, yet at the same time, managing to house 55,000 Ukrainian refugees when last year the system dealt with a total of 7,500 refugees is no small achievement and I think there is a a bit of a feeling in government that people are sort of underestimating the mammoth work that has already gone in despite it not being enough and then then from some there has been a little bit of a a kickback as well I think the, the ambassador also suggested that some of the refugees who were coming here weren't aware that there was such a squeeze in accommodation and then obviously that's a very traumatic thing for them. They're leaving their family, they're leaving their home, they're fleeing, often spending all of their savings to get out of the country in Ukraine and then they arrive in Ireland only to find out and be suddenly presented with this idea that there is no accommodation for them. And the Fidigail Senator Garrett Hearn in the Shannon last night uh, said that he thought that was a disingenuous suggestion that the government has always been clear that while people are welcome that there is a certain squeeze. So he sort of had a little bit of a, a cut back at the ambassador on that. Um, I'm just reading the Irish Independent this morning and uh, the paper is reporting that social media platforms such as Telegram um, are going to be used to communicate the message to Ukrainians that perhaps they shouldn't come here. Is, Is that a sign of desperation when they're going down that road? Well, I think that's it's an element of trying to get in touch with Ukrainians before they come here, which obviously can be quite difficult, not least because of the language barrier, but also because of the situation that they are living in, where depending on what part of Ukraine they're in, they might not have power, they might not have internet, uh, they might be in the middle of a war zone and just, just trying to get out, uh, whereas Telegram is obviously something that has been quite widely used by the Ukrainian government. It's what Vladimir Zelensky uses every day to do his sort of national address and to keep in touch with people, so quite a lot of them, them would be on that. So I think it is a way of trying to get to them at source but at the same time that the fact that we're having to do that and saying look you know maybe it's not the best idea to come here at the moment is is a bit of a sign of the dire situation that things are in is there any concern about the fact that uh, a payment of 400 euro per household was offered initially for families that would take in ukrainian refugees and that this is now being upped to 800 euro uh, which suggests that perhaps either families who said yes we'll take ukrainian refugees and then they've had second thoughts and they've decided not to that this is uh, if you like um, a desperate attempt to pass the the burden on to people who have space in their homes and that the only way that they can take in Ukrainian refugees is to make it financially worth their while. Yeah, I really wonder how effective that's going to be because I think a lot of the people who pledged they weren't doing it for financial reasons. They were doing it out of the, the kind of kindness of their heart and, and seeing what was going on in Ukraine and by anecdotal accounts certainly a huge amount of those people have not been contacted who have pledged and offered a place and said yes I'm happy to take one or two or however many Ukrainian refugees now the government said it is working through a backlog it does take time because you have to obviously make sure you're putting them into appropriate situations but I mean we're what seven eight months into this particular crisis seven eight months into to some of the pledges that have been made and yet people aren't taking them up so there's definitely some work there that needs to be uh, perhaps maybe greater resource to, on the path of the government to help the Red Cross sort through those and actually uh, pledge people like I wonder as for the families who have taken people in they're obviously also dealing with the cost of living crisis we can't forget that and having an extra body or two in the house so I, I think that extra money might be welcome for them but in terms of like being financially attractive to take someone in 
I, I don't know how many people are actually going to change their mind and say, oh, yeah, there's an extra 400 quid there on top of it, so I'll, I'll suddenly bring someone. I, I just, I'm just a bit sceptical about that one. Yeah, sure. I read somewhere, Sean, that uh, there's going to be a ban on visas being issued to people coming here from Russia and Belarus. A suggestion, perhaps, that some people are coming into Ireland from other countries, but claiming they are Ukrainian refugees and taking advantage of the situation we find ourselves in. Is that a cause of concern within Cabinet? Uh, yeah, there may be an element of that to it. That is something that certainly went to Cabinet yesterday. I think also it was it's, it's part of kind of wider sanction package against uh, Russia in particular, but also Belarus, uh, one of Russia's strongest allies. So it's sending a bit of a message there as part of the sanctions, but also, yes, if there are people who are maybe trying to use Ireland as the back door to get into the European Union to flee out of Russia, uh, that they're not going to be able to do it here. Finally, Sean, was there all-round uh, acceptance and agreement with the new uh, pub and nightclub licensing laws announced yesterday? Yeah, certainly a cabinet there was, and there was a big press conference went on for more than an hour yesterday with ministers from all four, uh, or all three um government parties and, and four ministers in total, I think there's general acceptance that look, licensing laws absolutely have to be reformed. There's a few questions about it from the industry and from different people. So obviously, uh, Alcohol Action Ireland uh, were saying that while overall licensing is welcome, that there is evidence that in other countries that for every hour longer through the night that you allow drinking, there is an increase in, in sort of problems with drinking in the country and increasing consumption. That wasn't something that was necessarily accepted by the Overacker and Helen McEntee yesterday. Uh, and I think they see it as part of a wider reform of Ireland's nightlife, because uh, particularly in Dublin, but also in other towns, the amount of nightclubs that have licences has dwindled massively since the crash, uh, and a lot of them haven't come back. I think it was more than 400 in 2007 nightclubs registered across the country, and now it's 85. So nightlife in Dublin in particular has really died a death over the last while and what Helen McEntee was saying is just, you know, she heard that from promoters that the industry was somewhat on a lifeline and when you have the big artists the big DJs and stuff going to European cities and they're able to play until all hours because somewhere like Berlin where there isn't really any, any restriction they can literally play through the night why would they come to Dublin to only be told you have to go home at two or have to so broadly I think mostly welcomed uh, there's a few details that we ironed out and that the industry was looking to see the finer detail of the bill when that's released but um, yeah broadly it's not a uh, Okay, we'll leave it there. That's uh, Sean Defoe on the line from Dublin, our political correspondent. We have more to come. We'll take a break. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, drink spiking incidents reported to Gardaí so far this year have almost doubled. In the year to the end of September, 40 people have reported having their drink spiked compared to just 22 reports made in all of 2021. And the Gardaí statistics also show that 24 people reported being spiked with a needle compared to 57 in 2021. This is a a very worrying trend amongst our younger population. Uh, One person who's very much at the forefront of receiving complaints is Nolene Blackwell, CEO of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre and she joins me on the line right now. First of all, Nolene, how bad is the situation? Uh, Good morning, Ken. It's really, really hard to know because while that doubling of the figure is a real concern in some ways, maybe it could also be just a greater recognition by the Gardaí and by people who have been victims of this kind of experience that they need to report it. Because for years, uh, people have been talking about that sense in which they were effectively poisoned or um, contaminated when 
when something was put in their drink, be that extra drink or be that a, a tablet or some other form of a drug. Um, and so that has been going on for years. And there has been a sense in which maybe we haven't been taking it seriously enough. We would hear it. You know, we run the National 24-Hour Helpline and as a result of that, you hear people saying, I don't know what happened. I was fine one minute and then I was not anymore. And there was that kind of sense in which people were saying, I wonder did that person just drink a drink too many and they just don't remember. Whereas now, I think this increase in reporting might be something about what the guards sent out with those figures. They sent out a message saying, we want to hear from people if they if they are if they're of the view that their drink was spiked, that their drink was contaminated, um, or or that they were um, punctured by a needle, which is a new phenomenon that we're hearing a bit about, because they need even if they can't find who did it, because it's normally done surreptitiously without telling someone, that's the whole point of it. And even if you can't find out who did it, the guards, if they have enough information, might be able to establish trends might be able to work out that it happens in one place but not another or with one crowd of uh, people but not another. So maybe the increase in numbers is increased reporting. But because honestly, it is hard to see how in this day and age that there is anybody in the world or anybody in Ireland, to be more specific, that thinks it is okay to spike someone's drink, that it is a prank or something funny because, you know, it so is not. Well, let me uh, ask you the question, and I don't know if you have the figures. Are there any statistics in relation to prosecutions in the courts, or is this a very difficult area to get prosecutions in? Yes, so I I don't have those figures, and my sense is that the the prosecutions aren't happening, even across in England and Wales, where they're also uh, focusing in a bit on this. Uh, The prosecution level is very, very low for a number of reasons. First of all, it can be very hard to establish, for instance, if if somebody is knocked out by a drink, which is often the case that people feel totally knocked out, uh, do not not feel themselves, uh, are not right, um, are in bed, are sick, by the time they're able to report it, very often there's very little evidence there. There's just that, that conviction, that knowledge that people have that it was not a normal situation of having a drink too many. So that can be a problem, gathering the evidence. Then finding out who did it is also a problem. So I suspect that, uh, we're, not, that we're not hearing separate figures for prosecutions in this and it's probably because they are still so low that it would be very hard to anonymise them for instance if, if um, even if they're taking place and truly we're not hearing that they're taking place they may be somewhere <coughs> pardon me but it's just not uh, it's, it's not something uh, that's easy to prosecute but it's not impossible either because if we have a situation for, for instance where um, people are aware that someone might have had their drink spiked uh, that they might have had some sort of, of an injection then if, if they are with friends and if the friends are aware that this could happen somebody as well they may be able to take somebody to get medical help it may be possible to carry out um, yeah. medical investigations okay. to see what the the substance sure. is 
that may be essential for health, but it may also help with prosecutions. Okay, Uh, you're quoted in the Daily Mail today as saying that uh, needle spiking is a new phenomenon. Uh, Have we reached a point where people entering pubs, indeed nightclubs, uh, should go through, if you like, a metal detector just to check if they're carrying needles for the purpose of injecting somebody with a drug in the hope of, if you like, knocking them out uh, or making them vulnerable to rape? Yeah, so so that that possibly is part of a solution. I think there's a way in which venues can be much more aware of this as well. Uh, so there can be that. I mean, I really find it so extraordinary that someone would go to the trouble of filling a syringe with a drug to take out on a night. It is, it is evidence surely evidence of uh, intention to to commit criminal behaviour. And so it may very well be that in pubs and bars there will be a need for something like that if you can find it and it would be very difficult uh, to find. But if you did, that finding someone in possession of what could be a lethal weapon might indeed be part of the solution. Just one final question. Uh, What message would you have to parents and in particular young women going out on the town at the weekend with the intention of having a good night out but uh, may be vulnerable to either having their drinks spiked or may be vulnerable uh, to having themselves injected by a needle that could effectively uh, knock them out for the want of a better description. Yeah, well, I think I think parents and people that people go home to, you know, flatmates or whatever, need to be very conscious that if somebody comes home really sick, this could be a part of their problem or if they seem disoriented or if people are out in a group for a night, if someone becomes disoriented, becomes ill, uh, that that their friends, that others in the group would be aware as well uh, that there could be a need to get medical attention for somebody uh, at that time. It, it, it is just, it's such a random um, kind of criminal behaviour that I just think people really have to look out for each other in a group as well. So I would say to people going out, yeah, they have to be careful now about, and I suppose they have to be careful about not having stuff stolen on them, but now to have to be careful to mind your drink as well. But that's something that young people are used to doing now. The other group of people that I think really need to be addressed in this, my advice to people is don't spike someone's drink. Do not interfere with their drink. Do not give okay. them more drink than they've asked for uh, or that, that, than they want. Do not put drink into somebody's soft drink. You don't know what uh, effect that might have on someone. It's deeply harmful behaviour right. It is, uh, and possibly criminal. Okay. So just stop doing it would be my biggest advice. Okay, well that sounds like very good sound advice. We're going to have to leave it there. That's uh, Nolene Blackwell. Thanks very much indeed uh, for joining us. Nolene there is the CEO of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. We'll take a break. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, according to Daniel McConnell writing in the Irish Examiner this morning, the government's retrofitting scheme has utterly failed with just 89 homes in the entire country completed out of a spy-in-the-sky target of 500,000 homes. And despite a need to retrofit 62 five 
62,500 homes this year. Only 681 homes have so far been approved for the scheme. It's either a disaster or it's just a case of people couldn't be bothered retrofitting the home or alternatively people don't have the money under the grant scheme. Now a meeting is taking place in the Boyne Valley Hotel tomorrow night in Drogheda where Colin Markey from RD, MEP for the Midlands North West will be explaining how the retrofitting scheme works uh, and its benefits and he joins me on the line right now from a sunny Brussels in Belgium. First of all, Colm, why is it necessary for you to hold a meeting in the Boyne Valley Hotel in Drogheda tomorrow night? Well, I think it's important that people get the the full information in relation to the whole grand scheme. Like, the reality is, I suppose, where we're at at the moment, like, the energy bills that people are facing are are very difficult. And alongside that, I suppose, we've all our various emissions targets and the like that we want to hit. So the idea of retrofitting and getting the retrofitting done has to to happen. And I suppose, look, there's been negative press in the media this week, and I think some of it's a misrepresentation of the situation. Certainly, it's taken longer to scale up than you might like in terms of it's only getting started. But in reality, what I want to do is get information out to people where where to start, what works could be done and and how to go about it really. And that's that's to start with, like in relation to what you mentioned about the schemes, like the reality is what the the figures you're quoting, the 89, that's, that's a deep retrofit. Now, in reality, that's akin to getting an extension to your house. It's a, it's a very significant upgrade of your whole house. It could involve, let's say, wrapping the house with insulation or insulation in the attic, maybe heat pumps. There's a whole range of things can go into that. So that's a, that's a, a big job. And in reality, while it, it, there's mention of very large numbers, like half a million houses by 2030, the target for this year was actually 600 houses to get a deep retrofit. Like The, the scheme was only announced in February. The, the contractors are really only starting to roll out on it since the middle of the summer. So I think people are, not to say it has to happen as quickly as possible, but you have to give it a bit of a chance. Okay, but uh, can I put the point to you, Colin, that while the objectives of the retrofit scheme are good and honourable and they mean well and we'll all live in warmer homes and means that we'll have uh, less... Uh, energy bills or rather cheaper energy bills it's all good uh, looking into the future but the reality is that a lot of people who live in older homes that need retrofitting they are financially stretched to the point that regardless of the grants on offer the money required to make up if you like the, the gap in the final bill some people just don't have the cash at the moment because of inflation in food and fuel and the general cost of living and that's where this retrofit scheme has a problem. Isn't that the case? Well, there is provision for, let's say, SBCI money, Strategic Banking Corporation of Ireland money, to be to be rolled out through the banks and the like of the credit unions. Now, that's not probably going to happen until early 2023 in reality. But definitely there has to be a part of the equation here is low-cost finance to be made, made available to people. Like grants... For grants for those, let's say, who can afford to, to fund the rest themselves, for those who can't afford to fund the rest themselves, that essentially that to be very low low interest rates. That money is coming from the EIB, so like it, it's that that money has to be made available. That's one part of the equation that isn't, if you like, rolled out yet and needs to be rolled out. Okay, but you're saying that people people who need their home retrofitted or insulated uh, should take out loans so that the government can achieve their targets. Is that the case? 
No, I'm not. There's, there's various things. The first thing is that there's grants available. So people can get up to 50% of the cost in, in, in some of the grants. Secondly, if people are in energy poverty, uh, they, are, they, they may be entitled to get the warmer home scheme. And that'll mean that they essentially they'll get the work done at no cost. Now, there, there may be a bit of a... Obviously, in that situation, there, there'll be very significant demand on that. And I'm just saying as regards a third cohort of people, people who want to access the grants and don't qualify because, they're, because of energy poverty, that they also, alongside that, a, not just yet, but it's, it's hopefully coming fairly soon, that they can also access the, the balance that they have to get in terms of the, the, to, ma- to match the grant, the money for that they can get through a, a low-cost loan scheme. And you have to bear in mind, your energy costs will be reduced after this. The value of your house will be moved up after sure. So, So in reality, if someone can get a loan over seven or, or eight years at a very low interest rate, surely, and then match that alongside a, a, a significant Yeah, grant, but do, do you accept, I think, though... I, I think that's a... A reasonable. It's it's not, and it's not just to meet government targets. It's also to make people's houses warmer. Sure, absolutely. And I'm saying the scheme the scheme is is good in principle, but the fact that we have inflation in building materials, this is adding to the increased cost of insulating a home. Would you accept that that's actually putting people off getting their homes insulated? Because if the costs go up. The uh, the gap between the, the the grant and the final bill goes up accordingly, and that's discouraging people from getting their homes retrofitted. Absolutely, I fully appreciate that point. And I'd say one thing about the meeting tomorrow night: it's not just about it, one part of it is about information. The other part of it is about listening to what people have to say to you and what the concerns are. And certainly, the inflation in raw materials, the shortage of skills that are out there. They are two challenges that we face at, at, at this point in time. I suppose one thing that I would push the whole time is, like across the whole construction sector, we have an issue with the capacity, the, the amount of uh, uh, workers we have to deliver on, on the scale of work that needs to be done. Like There's an enormous amount of work to be done in terms of house building to, to, to address the, the housing shortage. And there's an enormous amount of work to be done to retrofit our houses. So the scale of work that's needed for us to uh, address both our energy issues and our housing issues are enormous. We know that. And we do need to get more people into that sector. It's okay, like so that. And that's why there's been a big drive, I suppose, at government level in, in relation to trades and the like, to get more people involved. Like, yes, yeah, but just, I just want to stop you there because uh, we're coming up to the 10 o'clock news. Basically, you're going to be uh, appearing or attending um, at the Boyne Valley Hotel tomorrow night in Drogheda at 8 o'clock and you'll be giving advice on how the retrofit scheme works and the various grants available. That's the case. That's the case. And also to get a bit of feedback from people as well in terms of what their own right. concerns and issues are. And I think in fairness, some of the things... Maybe it's not that clear in some of the information that's out there. I'm going right. to try and make it a bit clearer for people. OK, we're going to have to leave it there. That's Colin Markey, Fine Gael MEP for the Midlands North and West. And I should tell you, by the way, that since February, when the retrofit scheme was launched, there have been nine applications from Meath and only seven from Loud. So the take-up is quite low. OK, more to come. We'll take a break. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, now, as you probably heard on the news yesterday, the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, has received Cabinet approval for her draft bill to reform Ireland's antiquated licensing system. The present system is based on a patchwork of 100 laws, some of which are over 200 years old and two-thirds of which predate the foundation of the state 100 years ago. The Minister for Justice, Fine Gael, TD, and mum-to-be again, Helen McEntee, joins me on the line right now. So, Minister, 
just talk us through the changes. Good morning, Ken. Hi. Uh, well, look, I, I think you've given a good outline there. What we have is a, a licensing system which comprises of over 100 laws. There's 36 different types of licenses. And what we're trying to do and I'm trying to do here is streamline it. So I'm making it one piece of law. We're reducing the number of licenses and we're doing a number of different things here. So firstly, it's a very difficult, it's a cumbersome uh, process for anybody, be it um, looking to apply for a license, be it somebody looking to have a, a late night license, uh, or be it just somebody looking to, to, to serve alcohol on their premises. So we're trying to make it more streamlined. So what I'm proposing is that people will be uh, essentially able to apply to the district court instead of the circuit court. There'll be a much more simplified uh, process to apply for it um, and obviously some of the costs will be reduced so it, it's about supporting some of the economy um, as it currently stands so our publicans, our restaurateurs, our hoteliers um, at the same time we have to acknowledge that you know, alcohol is not the same as any other type of uh, substance or it's not the same as any other type of uh, you know commodity that you would sell in a shop so if people are applying for a new licence there will be an opportunity, be it for the guards, be it for the HSE, the fire officers and others, to make their views known and to make sure that people run orderly houses and that's done in an orderly fashion. One of the key components of this bill, though, is really about giving people options. So over the last few years, our nighttime economy, not just because of COVID, but more generally, it has been hit in a huge way. We're seeing pubs in rural Ireland close down. We're seeing our nightclubs absolutely decimated to the point where we had about 520 years ago. We have about 80 or 90 across the country. So I want to help those industries, to reinvigorate them, to, to get them going again. Oh, okay. well, make just, sure there, there are different options for yeah, people as well. Just on that very point, because I, I know a lot about the nightclub business. I've done a lot of DJ work down through the years. I would put it to you that government legislation killed the nightclub business because in the past, certainly up until I think about 20 years ago, um, if you wanted a drink, you went to the pub. The pub closed at half 11, so if you wanted a late drink, you went to a nightclub and that meant that there was a very vibrant nightclub seen. But when licensing hours for pubs were extended, people were saying, well, I couldn't be bothered going to a nightclub now because I have to pay in at the door to get a late drink and people would just drink in the pub rather than go to a nightclub. And that government legislation or changes in the law basically killed off the nightclub business. So are you trying to get the nightclub business back, if you like, more vibrant again, or are you just trying to save those that are already in existence? Well, really both. I, I want to get those who are gone and who have left the market to be able to come back, but also to support the businesses that are there. And I think what you've just outlined, I suppose, is a change that's happened over the last few years where people, you know, people's habits have changed. People maybe don't go to the pub during the week in the same way. When they go out, they go out a little bit later. They drink more at home. But you now have a situation where we don't have any... DJs, we don't have any big acts, we don't have anybody coming because we don't have the spaces, we don't have the time to actually provide them with the, the you know, the, the 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 foundation that they need to to perform. So everybody closes at half two. So you have a situation where you can go to a bar and you can listen to music that's playing over the radio or over the, the sound system, or you can pay into a nightclub where they have to pay for their DJs, they have to pay for their acts, um, but you still finish at the same time. So what I'm talking about here is a more staggered approach. So your normal pub will close at half 12, your late bar will close at half 2, but you now have an opportunity where bigger venues would have to pay bigger amounts to bring in these acts. 
um, that you then can stay later and what we're proposing is six o'clock with the final drinks uh, finishing at five o'clock. So it's, it's to provide those options for people and at the moment if you want to go somewhere to see some of the major international acts, some of the major international DJs or bands, there really are no options for you because they don't come to the smaller venues. They don't, you know, that, that's not the work that they do. So okay. it, it, it's about providing options sure. for people. It's about providing different opportunities for younger people as well. Sure, but sure. I, I, a lot of it as well, it's about trying to reinvigorate the industry that's there at the moment. And okay. that's not just about Dublin or Galway sure. or Cork. It's rural towns and villages as well. All right. Well, there would be a lot of publicans listening to this very programme at this very moment in time, particularly struggling pubs in rural areas. And you're replacing what's known as the SEO, the Special Exemption Order, with a new annual permit scheme. Will you just explain to publicans what that is and how it will work? So at the moment, if you have a normal licence, but you want to serve late, so you want to become a late bar, you have to essentially apply for what's called an special exemption order, which was set up at the time for a special event on a special night where you wanted to serve a bit late. But what it actually is, is if you want to serve any night late, you have to apply and you have to pay on a nightly basis. So if you are a bar that maybe opens three nights a week late, you are paying up to €65,000 a year just for the pleasure of opening for two extra hours on a Thursday, Friday or a Saturday. Um, if you're a nightclub or if you're a venue that wants to stay open late seven nights a week, you can pay up to €150,000. You have to pay for each individual night and you have to do this every month. So you have to go back to the circuit court. So back to my point at the beginning about this being hugely costly for venues to be even able to operate, let alone get people in the doors, and the fact that they have to go to court and they have to do so regularly. What I am doing is making a year permit. So you could go to the court, again, the district court, you apply for a license, for a late bar license, and you do it on a yearly basis. And we'll remove... Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The, the massively cost-prohibitive fees. So while there will be a charge because we need to just cover the cost of the courts and revenue, it would be a much lower cost. And it just... It, it, you know, it's been a barrier. It's it's seen clubs close down. It's seen late bars close down and normal bars close down because people simply can't afford to be paying that type sure. of money. It'll streamline the process. A few. It will streamline the process. It will remove a lot of the costs. It will take a lot of the time and hassle because you won't have to go to the court every month. You will be able to apply when you apply for your normal seven-day licence and have everything done within the year. And I mean, what's really important, again, going back to the courts, 
if people are not operating their business in a proper way, if the Gardaí have problems with them, if there are issues that arise when you are renewing your licence in the same way that happens now. Okay in the courts, then obviously there can still be those objections and still be concerns right. raised. Another well. one that caught my attention um, that under the proposed okay. legislation uh, pubs and nightclubs will have security staff properly accredited with the private security authority. Surely that's uh, going to be difficult to police. Picture a scenario where Johnny is a doorman and he's uh, rostered on for Friday night but at 6 o'clock he gets sick and somebody says I can recommend Paddy down the street, he can fill in for me tonight but he's not accredited is the nightclub or the pub breaking the law if he shows up and he's not accredited with the private security authority? Well, look, I think it's important that we have people working on our doors that are accredited with the PSA, the private security authority. So while we are liberalising our timelines and allowing people to stay out later, again, you have to acknowledge that we need to be, um, you know, we, we need to acknowledge that sometimes where alcohol is involved late at night, that things happen, there is antisocial behaviour, incidents arise. So if you are opening a late night venue, that you have people on the door who are properly trained, who know what they're doing and are able to deal with situations if they arise. That's why we've stipulated that you must have CCTV outside of your, your premises as well, so that when people are coming out, when it's late at night, that you don't have these kind of incidents happening. So I appreciate it might be a step that people have to, or a hurdle that people have to overcome. But I think everybody would feel safer knowing or just feel more assured knowing that when they're going into a venue, the people who are there are fully accredited. That's not to say that people who aren't are not doing a perfectly good job now. But I think we always have to get the balance. So where we're opening for longer, where we're allowing alcohol to be served for longer, you have to counter that and make sure okay. that people are safe and that businesses are operating in a, in a proper function. Yeah, just a few more questions, because I want to talk to you as well about the Ukrainian situation. Uh, pubs, sorry, nightclubs will be open, open until 6am in the morning. Now, Alcohol Action Ireland is basically saying this gives people on a night out more drinking time and there will be lots of follow-on problems. There will be greater alcohol there will be more um, antisocial behaviour. There's likely to be an increase in absenteeism uh, in work. Isn't this one of the potential uh, problems coming down the line as a result of allowing nightclubs to open up until 6am? Well, what I probably should have said at the start is that throughout the last year and a half, we've had a huge amount of engagement with all stakeholders. So the public health um, groups have been very much involved and have been asked to, to make submissions and take part in the overall consultation process. I acknowledge what's being said in that the longer people have access to alcohol, the more problems that that can cause. But if you look at the very fact that over the last number of years, it used to be the case for a higher percentage of people when they drank, it was in a pub, it was in a nightclub, it was in a controlled setting, whereas now it has completely changed. The vast majority of people drink at home, it's not controlled, and so you actually don't know how long or what quantities people are drinking. So by extending a nightclub and drinking availability by two hours, you're actually you're bringing people back into a controlled environment, and that is the intention of this bill. We want to get people out. We want to reinvigorate our nighttime economy. We want to stop so many people drinking at home where it's not controlled for obviously that can lead to even more serious problems. Um, and you know some of the issues in terms of you know people drinking later, we've actually engaged with a lot of the other stakeholders who have welcomed the fact that you will now have staggered times. So, so it's, at, it's at the discretion everybody. of the, the, the nightclub owner when they close, I presume? I, absolutely. So this is not 
to force anybody. So if a pub sure. wants to close at half twelve, they can stay at half twelve. That's their choice, yeah. Half two and everybody else. But what we would now have is a staggered closing. So at the moment, every single person comes out okay. onto the street at half two. That actually causes problems. People can't get taxis. There's people hanging around. There's large groups. So what this sure. does is actually stagger out the numbers coming out okay. and make sure that there is more public transport for yeah. people and that there are less people engaged in in in. You know, okay, Minister, I, 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 as I said, the, as well. yeah, there's a wide range of areas we could uh, talk about on this legislation um, over the next hour or so. Um, but there's just one thing I want to ask you just finally on this uh, piece of legislation. You've appointed what are called advisors and Drogheda is one of the chosen towns. Uh, what can an advisor do that a publican and a nightclub owner doesn't already know? Well, look, this is an initiative from my colleague Catherine Martin's uh, department and from the Nighttime Economy Task Force. So this is a group that was set up at the beginning of this government to look at how we could reinvigorate our nighttime economy, that we could, you know, have a greater focus on culture and different types of events other than just pubs or nightclubs. So this is one of a number of cities and towns that are being, that are going to get the nighttime advisor. And it's really a position where this person will engage with all of those already involved in the nighttime economy, but also look and see what other options are available, what other buildings are there, what other types of cultural activities or different events could happen in Drogheda and how can they coordinate all of that. So really it's, it's a coordinating um, focus, but... At the same time, this person's job would be to try and reinvigorate the nighttime economy. So, as I said, support the businesses that are there, okay. but also look and see what options are available to draw it up. What else could we do that's different? What could we put on that might entice people in that, you know, whether it's a, a show, whether it's a, a gallery, sure. whether it's something else to, to happen as well. OK, I just want to just change track. Just one final question. And as I said, we could speak about the nightclub uh, sector all day long, but uh, just on the Ukrainian situation, have we reached a point now where we cannot take any more refugees from Ukraine because the accommodation isn't there? No, I don't think we're at that point. And, and I appreciate we've had a difficult weekend um, and we've had a number of people uh, when they arrived in the airport where we had challenges with accommodation. But, you know, we have in a very short space of time accommodated over 70,000 people. Um, and while it is going to be challenging, we just have to keep reminding ourselves where these people are coming from, what it is that they are fleeing. And that is you know, it is an unimaginable situation for them. So we are doing everything that we possibly can to support them. But I have to be honest, and as a government, we have to be honest, we're going to hit roadblocks and we're going to hit stumbles where we have challenges with accommodation. But every effort has been made to my own department, okay. housing, children, social protection, education, absolutely everybody is coming together on this to try and respond and all right. to support people as best we can. Okay, as I say, Minister, we could talk to you all day long about the nightclub business. I could even give you another half hour on the Ukrainian situation, but uh, time is against us. Thanks very much indeed uh, for joining us. That's the Minister for Justice and Fine Gael TD for Mead East, Helen McEntee. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Main leader Pader Tobin has heavily criticised the Taoiseach for trying to, as he puts it, muddy the water and equivocate and fudge in relation to the number of homeless deaths uh, amidst a homeless crisis. Something like 357 homeless people have died in the last five years. This is a shocking number by any standards in a so-called modern civilised society. To discuss this further, I'm joined on the line by Aintu leader and TD for Meath West, Pader Tobin. First of all, Pather, how bad is the situation? It is an incredible...
incredible situation. So 357 people have died in the last five years, as you say, and that's the equivalent loss of life to a transatlantic plane crashing from the sky. Um, it's a catastrophe, uh, and it's happening literally silently and invisibly every day on the streets of the capital. Um, and that figure has increased pretty, regular, uh, pretty highly uh, over the last number of years as well. So if you look back to 2018, there were 47 deaths. Uh, in 2019, 49 deaths. And then it went up to 76 deaths in 2020. And shockingly then, up to 115 people died um, in homelessness in Dublin in 2021. Uh, so far this year, 70 deaths have been recorded. Uh, but we're not into the, the really harsh months of November and December yet, where just purely because of exposure and because of the harsh weather, um, it is likely, um, shockingly, that there will be uh, more deaths. Um, so this is, is, these are incredibly high figures, and they're going in the wrong way. Um, their figures were released to me by the Dublin City Council under Freedom of Information Act. Um, and one of the biggest problems I have is that if we submitted the same question to any other local authority, to Loud local authority or to Meads, we'd be met with stony silence because no other county actually collects the data on the people who die in homelessness, which is really shocking. Um, you know, one of the first mantras in management is that if you can't measure, you can't manage. <clears throat> and if we're not even measuring the number of people who die in homelessness in the rest of the country, you know, how is the government going to be switched on to sure. urgently provide resources? Well, well let me put the question to you this way. If 357 people were killed through terrorism in the north over the last five years, there'd be uproar in the Dáil, there'd be treaties with the UK government, there'd be an increase in security in the north. So that leads one to ask the question, is the government really treating this uh, with any sense of seriousness? You're, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, and one of, the, one of the things that stayed in my mind when I came away from leaders' questions yesterday is, you know, how would this be tolerable in any other walk of life? And, you know, the questions I was asking myself, you know, is it, is it a class issue? Is it an income issue? Is it because, you know, these people are homeless and unfortunately they've, they've reached the bottom of the, of the ladder of society. Um, and it shouldn't be that way. Like, these people are, you know, brothers and sisters and fathers and, and mothers. Are, they're equal. You know, they're, they're the same as us, actually, in many ways, in that they've just, life decisions haven't gone right for them. Uh, they may suffer from mental health. Uh, they may have, you know, got into difficulties with drugs, etc., at some stage of their lives. But they are real people, and they deserve real protections and, and help uh, as well. And I can't imagine you know, any other sector of society not having the same focus okay. uh, in relation to this. What frustrates me about, about, about the government's approach to this is, and your, your question at the start hinted at this, is that the government seems to be equivocating on why these people ha- are dying. So, you know, I've raised this over a number of years, and initially the minister was stating that, well, the reason that these people are dying is just that, you know, people die, and this is the normal death rate that's happening in society. And then, you know, he even mentioned that these are accidents, car accidents, etc., are leading to these, these deaths. But that's not the case. Uh, we know that, obviously, some people who are dying on this, the streets and in homelessness, you know, it is the natural death rate. But we also know there's a high level of, of, of overdose, of suicide, of violence, 
and exposure and and these people many of them have no access to to doctors right but to, I, I want to put a question to you uh, Pather, that is basically a reflection on the feedback we get on this program i only fill in here every so often but it seems every time i do the text messages coming in from the public ask more or less the same question this is not so much me saying this this is me reflecting what the public are saying and it is what sort of a society do we have where the government appears to be bending over backwards, metaphorically speaking, uh, to give accommodation to refugees and people seeking international protection uh, at a time when we're effectively ignoring 10,000 homeless. In other words, the government seems to have its priorities in the wrong order. What do you say to that growing concern that's being reflected uh, by, if you like, concerned members of the public? I do think it's wrong that the government ignores uh, these tragic deaths and doesn't invest enough to provide the necessary services for these individuals. Uh, and that contrast can be seen with how um, the government is treating other people. There's no doubt uh, in, in my mind that is the case. The problem is that you know, the government won't even countenance a discussion or a debate on this issue. Um, we are under significant pressure in terms of uh, capacity in housing uh, and in accommodation and even in all the other services uh, in society. Um, and I've always been of a, view, of a view that we need to be the good, the, the good Samaritan, that in terms of violence and war abroad, we need to do our best to be able to help people who are fleeing. But we also need to make sure that we also help the people living in our own country um, and that they achieve the necessary investments that they need. That's really important. And in many ways, the government is not doing that. Um, and that, that's, a, that's a, a clear mistake and a difficulty uh, that people have with the, the government approach. And also, when we bring people into the country, we need to make sure that it's sustainable and it's manageable. It does not make sense in many ways to bring uh, people into the country and not be able to provide any housing or any shelter or any, even a bed uh, for people. Um, so I do believe there's more that the government can do in terms of empty buildings. You know, in, in, sure, in, but can I put the question to you, Pallet? Would you accept that the, the public perception now is, in light of the Ukrainian um, refugee crisis, that the government, in the eyes of some people, have their priorities in the wrong order? Well, I've always been of the view that anybody in Ireland should be entitled to uh, achieving house uh, access to, to health care and access to services, but nobody should be prioritised over and above anybody else. So if someone is on a housing waiting list for a long period of time, uh, etc., they need to know that you know, they will be dealt with, that they will be looked after, uh, that they will have the necessary uh, uh, help and support. And it is quite clear in my view that there are many in Irish society now who logically feel that they're not getting the supports that they need. And I think that the government is in danger of leading to a, a lack of social cohesion here. Uh, and this is very significant too because unless they treat people equally and make sure that, you know, people living here get the proper resources and the proper uh, help, there will be a, a level of, of, of lack of social cohesion that will creep into the system. And we don't want that either. We want a, a case where, you know, um, both newcomer and indigenous, um, you know, have good relationships and uh, there's a positive, um, a positive society, a positive um, experience. And it is a, a danger of the government's current policy that that could um, 
disappear in the future. Okay, uh, I just want to sort of move this on because uh, time is against it. But the Taoiseach, in his reply to the issues you raised, effectively said that there were many reasons for the deaths of people who are homeless. He seemed to be implying that there's no connection, that people who die that just happen to be homeless uh, have other personal issues that would have contributed to their deaths. He more or less seemed to be saying, well, these people died, but it wasn't due to homelessness. What does that say about the government's approach to, if you like, finding out the real reasons why 357 people have died in the last five years? Yeah, this is a critical point, because the government are, are, are pretending in many ways that this is not really their fault or this is not as a result of their actions. But we know that we have record levels of homelessness. There's well over 10,000 people who are in homeless accommodation at the moment. Well over 3,000 of those are children currently. We also know from a report that was carried out by an inner city doctor recently that the longer you're homeless, the more likely you are to suffer mortality. So somebody who's homeless for more than 18 months is eight times more likely to die than a person who's homeless for less than six months. So there's a clear correlation, a clear cause and effect link between long-term homelessness and death. And, you know, that particular study that, happened, that was carried out by the, uh, the doctor in the inner city, um, Dr. O'Carroll, wouldn't have happened at all only for aim to pushing the government down that road to make sure that we understand why these people uh, are dying. So the fact that we have the Taoiseach of the country equivocating muddying the waters, fudging the issue around why these people are losing their lives, at this stage shows you that the government are simply not putting in the necessary resources to actually fix this problem. If they're still pretending that this is not a cause and effect situation, well, why would they be motivated to put in the necessary uh, 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 primary care, mental health, dual diagnosis uh, and housing uh, solutions that these people need? And, and that's, that's a that's, you know, a key issue. That's why these figures are going up, because simply the government are not accepting their responsibility uh, in fixing it. Um, The signs are that the number of people being registered as homeless appear to be increasing, suggests that on a pro rata basis, without trying to sound uh, morbid about it, that the number of people uh, dying that are homeless is likely to increase. Uh, How much of a cause of concern is that? Well, there's absolutely... No doubt that that is the case. Uh, purely on the basis of numbers, if you increase the people on the streets, if you increase uh, the, lo- the, the level of people uh, who uh, are you know, in emergency-type uh, scenarios, who, who are being dealt with with the services, who haven't got access to the necessary help, uh, well, then, unfortunately, you're going, to deal, you're going to see that number increase in the future. And we're hearing news uh, from the likes of Dublin, uh, etc., that these emergency accommodation shelters are full to capacity at times, that there's simply no space uh, for these individuals. And when that's the case, that means we're going to see more and more people under, you know, lashing rain, under heavy frosts, under potential snow. um, And that is bad for people's health. um, And that's going to lead to deterioration in people's health as well. So, Look, we have to get to grips with this, and we can get to grips with it. But we need a government that, first of all, accepts that this is a crisis and also starts to record the number of people who are dying in every other county in the country outside of Dublin. And then, obviously, we need to make sure that the, that the housing and provision of housing is, is provided. Right now, there are thousands of homes uh, around the country that are empty, um, and the government has refused to put in a, 
in a vacant home tax, and they refuse to deliver a proper vacant site tax, and, and they're refusing to, to build the necessary accommodation for people who are homeless as well. And, and until the government gets to the, the crux of this crisis, this humanitarian crisis, we're going to be on radio shows similar to this over the next number of years, sadly talking about the deaths that are happening on our streets. Finally, Padre, just to change uh, track, uh, you went on a, a protest march last week between Beliver and Trim to highlight the school bus issue there. Has there been any developments? Yeah, well, first of all, we're delighted that um, this protest took place. This was, you know, the, the people of Beliver literally standing up for their rights in terms of access to to education for their for their children. This is a situation where uh, many parents are having to take time off work to be able to deliver their kids to school. People remember three months ago the minister promised that there would be uh, free bus transport to people um, around the country. It never materialised for many people, and there are dozens and dozens of people in County Meath were still without it. Uh, but as a result of that protest that we took um, in Beliver, uh, Bus Aaron are now tendering for a school bus to run the journey from Beliver to uh, Trim. So we're hopeful uh, that in a number of weeks' time, that in a short time, um, that there will be a bus put in place for these children and this issue will be resolved. But again, it's a terrible thing that the people have had to you know, use people power to protest to achieve what should be a, a, a normal service that's uh, delivered to people in their time of need. There you go. That's uh, Pather Tobin, leader of Ain2 and TD for Meath West, uh, speaking about the fact that 357 homeless people have died in the last five years and just uh, commenting there on some progress in relation to the Beliver school bus issue. More to come. We'll take a break. Michael Reed on LMFM. I know lots of you have been uh, texting in this morning. We'll try and get through your comments uh, tomorrow. I don't think we'll have time for, this, uh, for them this morning. We have a few items to get through before the end of the programme. Now, a survey carried out by the Teachers Union of Ireland has found that 91% of secondary schools reported difficulties in recruiting teachers in the past six months. 71% of schools that advertised jobs in recent months did not get a single applicant, while 61% experienced problems with teacher retention. There's clearly uh, a problem in the sector. Uh, Michael Gillespie is the General Secretary of the Teachers Union of Ireland, and he joins me right now. First of all, Michael... uh, how bad is the situation? Good morning, Ken. Well, I mean, this is not a new situation. It's been building for the last number of years. Uh, you know, there's a couple of parts to it. Uh, we have the issue, I suppose, of an, an increasing number of students in post-primary. We have the problem as well that we are not producing enough teachers for that increase in, in, in teachers. Uh, sorry, in, in, in student numbers. So, it's very interesting. One of the findings we had was that 87% of the people who responded said it's more difficult this year than last year. So it's, it's an ever-increasing number. And there's a couple of reasons for it. We asked them what were the reasons. And they, the first reason, that the number one reason was it, there's more attractive options for new graduates in other employments because these are post-primary qualified. So they're like physics graduates, uh, Spanish, German, home economics. Also, there's better, there's permanent jobs being offered in other jurisdictions. Again, the, the stop that was in COVID has, has now gone. Um, the unavailability of full hours contracts upon initial appointment, that's a big problem. Obviously, number three, accommodation costs in some areas, but also availability of accommodation in other areas 
where the cost is not maybe as, as, as big. And obviously the fact that for a long, long time, the new entrants had discriminatory pay. Now, a good bit of that has been recovered recently, but uh, that, that, that's the, they're the top four problems they're seeing as being recruitment. Okay, obviously you've uh, knocked down the door at the Department of Education to say, look, there's a crisis here. What's the department saying? Well, the, 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 the department set up a steering group to look at teacher supply, and there are certain things being done to try and alleviate it, but not enough. Um, we're not even on that steering committee. So there's no teacher representative on that steering committee uh, who are at the coalface and listening to members all over the country, including our principals. Our principals have been doing a good job in putting Band-Aids on um, around the country. But what's happening is students are getting a, a reduced choice. If you can't get a certain subject teacher, the school may have to drop that subject. So that means that student choice goes down. The biggest problem that we're going to face in the winter months is obviously people get sick um, and people are not, are not going to school. Uh, you know, if they've got years ago, people would go to school with a cold, students and teachers. Now you can't because of COVID. So the minute there's, a, there's something, people are out. Also, people have to go for elective surgery and we have maternity leaves. We cannot get subs. There is no substitute. Even if you are lucky enough to get a sub in a school, it may not be a qualified sub in that area. It might be qualified in a different subject. So you could have a class where the person in front of you is not qualified in the area they're trying to teach. Yeah, is so it, it, a, yeah I was going to ask you, I mean, we know that doctors are leaving the country uh, to go to the Middle East and Australia and so on, and that teachers are leaving as well. Is it all about money or is it that the population has grown? There are more pupils and students going through the system than ever before, but the school infrastructure hasn't expanded accordingly to create openings. Is it that or are there other issues? No, there are other issues. We haven't reco- we have not changed our model for allocation since uh, 2009, since the, the cutbacks of 2009. So, for example, teachers, the retention issue, teachers don't have middle management opportunities. Not everybody wants to be a principal or a deputy principal, but they would take a middle management job. There are none of those available because we haven't recovered to the levels we had in 2009 and the government hasn't reintroduced them. Teachers don't start in Ireland on permanent hours. So because of the way people are leaving and the allocation model, if people retire or whatever, uh, maybe this year because, and, and the numbers go up, maybe they only have enough of an allocation to create three quarters of a job. So a teacher is starting in a three quarters of a job. Now, they might start in that job and do it for a year to get a, a reference or whatever, but they won't stay. They'll go to a job in, in a, another jurisdiction where A, they'll get a, a full-time job, get, have promotional opportunities, and also in some cases are even being pro- promised accommodation now in these other jurisdictions. Or because they've got transferable skills, they may go into the private sector where, where there's a, you know, a dearth of vacancies for people with high qualifications and they'll leave teaching. So we need to, to keep them in teaching and to get them in. The first thing we have to do is give them permanent jobs with full hours. That's the only way to keep them in the job. We will not get teachers back from abroad. Nobody's going to leave a, a full-time job for three-quarters of a job in Ireland. So to get people, to bring them home, to bring teachers home, we have to start offering full-hour jobs. Sure. Therefore, there needs to be fle- more flexibility in the allocation models to school. And Trying I mean, to oh, operate oh, schools yeah. on tight models okay. uh, of, of a recession era isn't working. Yeah, just one final question. I mean, ultimately, is this penny-pinching by the government or is it just bad management? Look, it, 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 it's, a, it's a slow change in what was brought in uh, under austerity, and it hasn't been fully unwound yet. And they're just, they need to start 
deciding how to unwind it quicker. As I said, re- restoration of people. You're right. Professionals are leaving. Also, the, the problem is there's a heavy workload because we're still operating under austerity um, measures. The workload is also forcing people to go to other jurisdictions where the workload is maybe not as heavy as it is here. And there's not as much bureaucracy. There's a huge amount of bureaucracy has come into schools, which right. again makes it unattractive. Okay, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. We wish you well in your quest uh, and your battles with the Department of Education. That's uh, Michael Gillespie there, the General Secretary of the Teachers Union of Ireland. More to come. We'll take a break. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, if you think the cost of living is tough on you, spare a thought for our Community Employment Scheme supervisors. They have not had a pay rise since 2008 and they are at their wits' end. Michelle Rohan joins me on the line now from Galway. She's the Vice Chair of SIPTU's National Committee in this area. Michelle, how come this has been allowed to drag on for, what, 14 years and you people haven't got a pay rise? Well, that's the, the golden question came, to be honest with you. Um, it's not for the one to try in on our behalf, um, but uh, it's an incredible situation uh, to be currently in, and it's across other sections of the community sector, including ourselves, Um and why it has gone on, every excuse in the book has been used at this stage because um, it's not just one particular party, it's successive governments, successive parties down through the years since 2008 that have come into power, promised the sun, moon and stars before they get into power and then walk away and they've left us in this situation. So what have you done in terms of making the case for a restoration of pay? Well, We've had several um, days of protest, uh, strike days, threatened of uh, more industrial action. Several talks have, um, we've had several talks with government bodies, government um, departments, uh, various politicians throughout the length and breadth of the country, our own unions, Force and SIPTU have been involved. And we've gone nowhere. Uh, we brought them to the Labour Court and we've actually won Labour Court recommendations going back to 1998. Um, and still we haven't succeeded in getting um, any pay increase. The rates in 2008 are still the same rates that we are paid today, irrespective of a cost of living increase or any other increases that have uh, occurred. Now, originally, um, we were aligned with the public service sector, um, and that has fallen apart. And uh, even, le- even recently, um, the public service uh, pay agreement has been passed by all parties and all the community sector has been left out of that. We're not part of that, unfortunately. Um, are you victims of the collapse of social partnership? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and that's something that has to be re-established. Um, from the collective bargaining point of view, all of that has disappeared over the last number of years. It's total disrespect uh, for all the community um, and voluntary sector across the board by successive governments, not just this particular one. Now, I think I interviewed you there, I think, a couple of weeks back um, elsewhere, and I think you told me that with changes coming up in the budget, that come January, some of your people will actually end up working for less than the minimum wage. Is that the case? That's correct. Um, The pay rate of our assistant supervisors, um, the starting pay rate of an assistant supervisor is currently €11.01 per hour. And... The, the minimum wage um, at the moment is ten fifty. 
So it's very, there's very much, very little in the difference there. But after Christmas with the new budget um, announcement, that is um, going to go up to 11.30 and our assistant supervisors will remain at 11 euro one cent. And you people need, what, uh, certain qualifications, uh, third level qualifications, either a BA or a master's degree, and you bring all sorts of skills to the job. I mean, this is appalling treatment. Um, Well, in actual fact, Ken, that was the case. You had to have a a, a third level qualification. But the uh, CE manual, which they use as the Bible to uh, dictate as to how our schemes are to be run, they removed that little point out of it that... uh, our requirement because we couldn't get people to apply for the role of assistant supervisor. We were all we were, we were also having problems with people trying to recruit people at supervisor level because of the pay rates. I mean, who in their right mind would apply for an assistant supervisor's role with at the starting rate of eleven euro per hour? Okay, well, let me ask you the question. That that requirement, thinking that that would open up uh, to more recruitment, but you have to have a certain standard of education and a certain level to be able to complete the job. Sure, but have you have you lobbied? uh, You know, your all you know have all your CE supervisors around the country have they lobbied their local TDs? And what response are they getting? Oh, we'll get back to you. And every now and then they put a PQ in and you get uh, the usual uh, reply back from the department that they're not our employers and therefore can't, um, would have nothing to do with what, what our pay rates are. That's the, that's the responsibility of all the um, schemes, the limited company schemes that we work for. So in most of the schemes, there's over 800 in the country, they're, they're all set up as limited companies. So our employer is the board of management of each of those schemes. And these people, um, the, these schemes are funded, they're government funded. So they don't have the funds to increase our wages unless they use the funding that the government provide and guess what when we've gone and said well look at uh, increase the funding for the salaries for the supervisors they say no Right, so you're getting the cold shoulder. Uh, Finally uh, Michelle I believe there's a, a meeting of importance tomorrow what can you tell me about that? Well, it actually will probably um, relate to the assistant supervisor situation because they know they're up against it now. They have to do something about the starting point. Um, We had brought it up at an operational forum meeting in September um, and that's when we first heard that they were looking at it, reviewing it. And they now have to because... You know, I mean, it's incredulous that they would think that somebody would be working for €11 an hour after Christmas when the minimum wage has been increased to 11.30. At a recent uh, meeting, I told them that I had actually put up a job for um, a new assistant supervisor in an area and I couldn't get um, any applicants, no applicants came in. Uh, When I put it up on indeedjobs.ie, it flashed back in red telling me that the wage was below the minimum wage for the location. Now, this was in a rural area, and I made the point to the DSP officials, if I put that up with an address for Dublin, the computer could probably explode. 
I, I, I get your point all right, yeah. Unfortunately, Michelle, we're going I'm to expecting to... that. I'm expecting this meeting tomorrow to be about that, but we will be raising our own situation because it will have to change. Sure. All right. Okay, well, Michelle, all we can do is uh, wish you well and uh, keep up the fight, as they say, and we'll uh, we'll watch that story with interest. And there Thank you are. That just much. about wraps Thank up the programme for this morning. Thanks, Michelle. That wraps up the programme for this morning. I know a lot of you have been texting in this morning and uh, we will try and get to your comments uh, tomorrow. I want to thank Maggie Maguire who produced. Chris Murray was on sound. Sinead Brazel is next. I'm Ken Murray. And uh, until the next time, bye for now. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie LMFM Podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or book a new showroom appointment on 87 Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.